you know, they're setting us up for totalitarian style governmental control over people's private lives, uh, just like they are uh, trying to dismantle basic public rights, like the right to vote and to have your votes counted fairly. So I, I consider it an alarming situation. I think that, you know, we, the Democratic Party, for all of its flaws and its imperfections, is really the only major party left that's committed to democracy. And uh, Lincoln's party has become Donald Trump's cult of authoritarian personality. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin was expecting trouble after the November 2020 presidential election. Raskin and his Democratic colleagues in Congress anticipated that Donald Trump would try to subvert the results and attempt to derail Congress's normally pro forma certification of President Joe Biden's election. Two things blindsided Raskin. On December 31, 2020, Raskin's only son, Tommy, a promising young student at Harvard Law School, took his own life after a long struggle with depression. Seven days later, and just a day after burying Tommy, when Raskin returned to Congress to cast his vote to certify Biden's election, Trump supporters mounted a violent insurrection in the Capitol, egged on by the defeated president. Speaker Nancy Pelosi subsequently tapped the grieving Raskin to be lead manager in Trump's second impeachment trial. Since last summer, Raskin has also been a member of the Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Raskin tells his intensely personal and political story in his new book, Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy. Congressman Jamie Raskin, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Well, I'm really pleased to be with you, David. Thank you for having me on. Finishing your book, Unthinkable, it reads like a love letter to your late son, Tommy, and a love letter to democracy. Uh, I found it spellbinding because some of the events of January 6th are just that by nature, but just powerful and emotional on many levels. Tommy was your muse, your North Star, the way you describe him. Tell us about Tommy. Tommy was a dazzling young man. Um, he was just tremendously exuberantly funny. He cracked everybody up. Um, we just got back from Cambridge, actually, where Harvard Law School had a memorial service for him. He was in his second year at Harvard Law School when we lost him. Um, but so many of his classmates just described him as the life of the party. And, um, you know, he was... Um, he was a musician, he was a playwright, he was, um, uh, you know, a, a stand-up comic. Um, he, you know, he was somebody that everybody wanted to be around. Uh, and he had profound moral and political passions. He was a, very much a human rights activist. He was an anti-war activist. And um, he uh, became a vegan and was a really strong animal rights person as well and converted more people to not eating meat than anybody I've ever met in my entire life. And he wrote several poems um, about 
uh, about being vegan and uh, what it meant to him because everybody would ask, why are you a vegan? And then he would just get up and start delivering one of these poems. And one of them uh, is a very profound poem called Where War Begins. And it's all about how the slaughter of animals conditions us to uh, accept violence against human beings. You write about how you channeled Tommy throughout the impeachment, which occurred, you know, a month-ish uh, after his passing. Give us an example of a moment during the impeachment where you looked to Tommy for guidance. Well, the, Tommy was, a, was, among other things, a really brilliant debater um, and did debate when he was in high school. And he was a real student of uh, rhetoric. Um, and uh, so many of the things that I said resonated to me in kind of Tommy speak. But um, well, one moment I remember real specifically, and I do think I record this in the book, um, was we had deliver, delivered our uh, opening statement at the beginning of um, the Senate impeachment trial. And we had ended up with, I think, 28 minutes left over. So um, I reserved the time, uh, turned it over to uh, Trump's lawyers, who you may recall um, really did a terrible job, but I don't know that it was completely their fault. Um, I mean, they just had so little to work with because the facts were overwhelmingly on our side and the Constitution and the law were overwhelmingly on our side. Um, and we had uh, been preparing night and day for several weeks, and we had a sensational team of impeachment managers, as you know. And so um, they closed, and um, I had to make a decision about whether to begin to try to you know, shoot down everything that they had said and to expose all of the weaknesses and fallacies of their arguments. Um, but I thought about Tommy um, and how he um, oftentimes uh, in debate was very reserved and would be very much a gentleman, but it was almost as if to say, um, I don't need to respond to that. There's nothing there. And so um, I just got up and I said, you know, we've, we've been trying to conduct this you know, there was a lot of partisan rhetoric on the other side. And so I basically just had one line and I said, we've been trying to conduct this trial in a bipartisan way and nothing is more bipartisan than the desire to recess. So we will yield back the <laughs> remaining 28 minutes of our time. And it's probably not the kind of thing I would have done, but it was very much the kind of thing that Tommy would have done. I mean, he was very elegant and um, uh, very eloquent in, you know, in his presentations. It, it seemed appropriate to the moment where they had finished what, as I recall, an incoherent kind of stream of consciousness ramble. Um, and it was a moment where one could put the stick in the dagger. Um, but you, uh, you took the high road. <laughs> oh, Tommy always had a great sense of compassion for people he disagreed with. In fact, he, he taught Sunday school. And one of the things he would tell the kids in his class was um, try to make friends with someone you fundamentally disagree with and, um, you know, find what's good in them and let them get to know you. And it was beautiful advice. And, um, you know, it, in his class at Harvard Law School, 
you know, we met, you know, young people who were his friends who were very much uh, of a mind with him politically. I mean, he was a strong progressive. He also had very strong libertarian leanings, um, but he was also uh, friends with a kid who had worked in the Trump administration. And I think Tommy felt um, that, you know, there were, he wanted to, to figure out how this, you know, young man thought and, uh, um, and they became friends. And I think, you know, and, and he, he told us that um, how meaningful it was to him to have Tommy as a friend and to feel connected in that way in a situation when he might've really been isolated. Let's turn to the impeachment and your current work on the January 6th commission. When you and your fellow house managers made the case for impeachment last February, you connected many dots and really told a harrowing tale uh, behind the coup. Um, you began with the January 6th committee last summer. What do you know now that you didn't know at the impeachment about the coup attempt? Well, um, We've been able to fill in a lot of the details for things that we understood in broad contour before. Um, you know, we, we knew that um, a lot of the effort was targeted on Mike Pence to get him to declare extra constitutional unilateral powers to reject and repudiate electoral college votes coming in from Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, and then also perhaps Nevada and New Mexico. Um, but, um, you know, some of that was putting together different kinds of clues and then making a surmise. But then to have, you know, the Eastman memo come out uh, and have it so clear that there was a whole plan to, uh, to destroy Joe Biden's majority in the Electoral College of 306 to 232 to drive his totals below 270 in order to deny him a majority and then to kick the whole contest into the House of Representatives under the 12th Amendment. Uh, it was just it was eye opening to see that everything that we were assuming actually was being planned and was premeditated. Um, and of course, they wanted to get it into the House of Representatives for a contingent election because they knew that uh, we don't vote there according to one member, one vote. If we did, then it would have been a majority confirming Biden's majority in the Electoral College. We vote according to state by state. And they had, after the 2020 elections, 27 state delegations they controlled. The Democrats have 22. Uh, and one state, Pennsylvania, split down the middle nine to nine. Uh, and so was to the sidelines. So even had we lost uh, the, uh, or rather, even if the GOP had lost uh, the vote of Liz Cheney, the at-large representative from Wyoming, they still would have had 26 votes and they would have been able to you know, rush it through like the Republican National Convention to declare uh, Trump president. And then likely uh, based on other things that have come out, I've come to believe that they were prepared to invoke the Insurrection Act and declare martial law. And Trump probably would have called in the National Guard at that point to put down the insurrectionary chaos they had unleashed against us, blaming the whole thing on Antifa, which was also part of the 
propaganda pre-planning of this whole effort. So, um, you know, we have learned a lot. It's pretty remarkable, the the contingent election where Peter Welch representing 600,000 people would have his vote would count as much as, uh, you know, California with 40 million people. Yeah. Well, and the whole point was to overthrow the Electoral College, which itself is not democratic. uh, But Biden did soundly beat uh, Trump 306-232, which happens to be the same margin that Trump had beaten Hillary by in 2016, a margin that Trump had declared a landslide. So they were prepared to um, unconstitutionally overthrow, set aside his landslide victory in order to push the whole thing um, into the House of Representatives. Or the alternative was uh, to drive his numbers below 270 but then say that the electors from those tens of millions of people were never lawfully cast and therefore use a new denominator and simply say that Trump beat Biden in the uh, electoral college, which was the other way that they would have gone. Um, So there were multiple plans afoot. And indeed there were multiple plans from the point of the election for trying to destroy Biden's majority in the Electoral College. As you know, they went to uh, GOP-run state legislatures to get them to avoid out the popular vote and just appoint electors for Trump, which to their credit, um, they refused to do. Then they went to the election officials, people like Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, and simply tried to coerce them, intimidate them into finding votes. Just find me 11,780 votes, uh, said Trump to uh, Raffensperger. I mean, mean, that's not Trump trying to stop election fraud. That's Trump trying to commit election fraud. Why didn't Pence fold? I mean, he had been Trump's, you know, loyal foot soldier, covering for Trump and some of the most outrageous things uh, whether, you know, it was the, you know, his assaults on women, all these charges. What's your take on Pence and why he held out? Well, I don't know the answer, but there are different theories about it. Um, you're right that he demonstrated nothing other than invertebrate sycophancy for four years running. Um, And so uh, when I got that memo at 1 p.m. on January 6th on the House floor explaining why he could not do constitutionally what Trump was asking him to do, um, it it was astonishing. It was uplifting to see that he had done it, but it was pretty amazing, uh, too. Um, You know, I've come to think that... um, you know, he did check with a whole bunch of lawyers and all of his lawyers and everybody around him um, were determined that he had no such authority. And of course, no vice president had ever done anything like that before. Um, and I think that he probably thought to himself, well, everything else he'd gone along with, Trump was doing in his own name. But this was Pence now acting in his constitutional role as the vice president And Trump was telling him to do something way outside of the constitutional order Hmm. that went 
of course, right to the peaceful transfer of power and the whole idea of having a democracy. If you don't have a peaceful transfer of power, you don't have a democracy. The people are no longer in control. And this was an attempt to raid the Constitution and to overthrow the election and to seize the presidency. That's what was going on. So, I, you know, he, he did the right thing. And, um, it, you know, it was uh, kind of a one day only pass because um, I think he has now been doing everything he can again to try to curry favor with the forces of Trumpism in the country. And of course, they're not going to have anything to do with him because with Trump, it's all or nothing. I mean, either you obey in every case or you're an enemy like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and Mitt Romney are. Sketch out, you have described um, the what happened with the coup in terms of sort of three concentric rings of actors. Just briefly sketch that out because I, I find it very illuminating. The outer ring was tens of thousands of people who were drawn to Washington over social media um, to appeals by Trump to come for a wild protest. Um, and obviously people there arrived with different sets of motivations and intentions. Um, but by the time that mass of people went from the White House to the Capitol, it had become a violent mob and uh, had inflicted serious injuries on police officers, more than 150 of whom ended up with broken jaws, broken necks, uh, black eyes, uh, concussions, traumatic brain injury, broken arms and legs and, you know, heart attack strokes, you name it. So um, that was the most innocent level of activity. The middle ring of activity was the insurrection made up of domestic violent extremist groups, mostly white nationalist groups that had been brought together for the express and premeditated purpose of uh, taking over the Capitol, smashing our windows, knocking down our doors, attacking our officers, essentially offering bloody instructions to the crowd on how to become a mob. And then finally to stop the steal by which uh, they meant, of course, to interrupt the counting of electoral college votes for the first time in American history and blocking the peaceful transfer of power. And that middle group consisted of uh, the Proud Boys, who Trump had told to stand back and stand by, during the first presidential debate, uh, the Oath Keepers, uh, three of whose members have already pleaded uh, guilty to um, seditious conspiracy, which means conspiracy to overthrow the government. Um, the three percenters, the QAnon networks, the Ku Klux Klan, the Aryan nations, the uh, First Amendment Praetorian, uh, multiple uh, Christian white nationalist groups, some other religious cults that were thrown in, including the Rod of Iron, which is the successor uh, institution to Samyang Moon's Unification Church. One of his sons has created this uh, a, a violent gun cult. Um, so all these people were training, many you know, engaged in uh, military-style training for the assault on the Capitol and came in. And um, you know, we have found uh, great evidence of coordination among them to um, at the very least overthrow the election uh, and block the counting of electors, if not to overthrow the government, which was certainly uh, in the designs of some of them. That itself was not the scariest ring. 
The scariest ring was the very, very innermost ring of the coup. And coup is a, an odd word to use in American political parlance because we don't have a lot of experience with coups in our own country, at least. Um, and we think of a coup as something that takes place uh, by the military or part of the military against a president. But this is a coup that the political scientists call a self-coup where the president attacks the constitutional order itself in order to perpetuate his power in office. And this was a coup orchestrated by Donald Trump against the vice president, against the Congress and against the people and our institutions. And, um, you know, he had tried multiple different things, uh, including possibly seizing the election machinery and having the military rerun the election, because everybody knows about that provision in the Constitution, which allows the military to seize the machinery of the elections and rerun the election. But when none of that stuff worked, then it all came down to getting Pence to declare uh, these lawless powers to unilaterally reject electoral college votes. Um, and uh, when he refused to do it, Trump, rather than simply accepting that, uh, turned up the heat, sent out uh, the tweet just before 2.30 uh, saying that Mike Pence did not have the courage to do what needed to be done. And um, you know the mob went crazy and we heard them chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence, which struck me as astonishing that you could have tens of thousands of pro-Trump supporters chanting against Trump's own vice president. And that demonstrated uh, a degree of political um, sophistication and education on the part of a mob that's quite astounding, uh, mm -hmm. that they understood uh, because of Donald Trump's explanations that it was Mike Pence who stood between him and being able just to steal the presidency. You've said, and I think you were channeling uh, Yale professor Tim Snyder, uh, who's been a guest on this program as well, um, the single biggest predictor of a successful coup against a government is a recently failed coup uh, because the attackers can scope out the weaknesses. Um, at this moment, Trump followers are working at a granular level to assure a better outcome for them next time at school boards, county election commissions, voter subversion laws. Can American democracy survive this assault? Well, um, I mean, we've got to survive this assault if, um, if democracy is going to survive and if, um, you know, we're going to have the ability to confront even larger threats like climate change. Um, so I think we have to, and I think that we will. I believe, David, that the vast majority of Americans are with us in wanting to defend democratic institutions and values and democratic progress in the country. Um, what they have against us is a bag of tricks, starting with the gerrymandering of state legislative districts and congressional districts, which then allows GOP legislatures to draw up voter suppression statutes to keep more people from voting. And when we try to pass federal legislation like the For the People Act or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act to protect voting rights, then they use another anti-democratic instrument, the filibuster in the Senate, in order to shut us down. And that whole 
system, including manipulation of the Electoral College, is protected by right-wing judicial activism and the packing of the courts. So they basically have every anti-democratic instrument in the country in their bag of tricks, which they're using to try to thwart the very clear will of the majority. I mean, Hillary beat them by 3 million votes and Biden beat them by 7.5 million votes. And we beat them by more than 5 million votes in congressional elections. But we're up against the gerrymandering and the voter suppression and the filibuster and so on. So somehow we're going to have to break out of that matrix of Republican democracy suppression. I know that you teamed up with California Congressman Ro Khanna and are talking about how you do that, how the Democrats do that. What is your plan? What's your best idea for defending democracy right now? Well, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's purely old fashioned ideas. I mean, we've got to uh, mobilize uh, millions and millions of people across the country, which we can do now, especially in the wake of uh, news about the Supreme Court's assault on another uh, basic right of the people, the right of uh, reproductive freedom and autonomy. Um, and, um, you know, so in my own small way, what I'm doing, I mean, my entire campaign consists of one thing. We don't do um, pollsters, consultants, polling, TV, radio, none of that stuff. But all that I do is my democracy summer project where we take in college and high school kids and we educate them about the history of social and political change in the country. Uh, and we have seminars and readings and so on. And then we send them out to register people to vote and to engage in canvases and digital organizing and everything you need to do to win campaigns. And we have, uh, you know, unleashed them in the past in uh, swing districts uh, all the way from Pennsylvania and New Jersey down through Virginia and Georgia. Uh, th this summer, Democracy Summer, is going nationwide. Uh, we are in, I think, uh, 70 or 75 congressional districts, and we're hoping to have more than a thousand young people come and participate with Democratic members of Congress and Democratic candidates in open districts. Um, but that's just, you know, th that's one clue to where we need to go. But we need to have a, a massive mobilization of everybody on our side to get everybody registered and uh, participating to vote. And, you know, that in itself could uh, yield us um, control of the House and more senators so we could have real functional control in the Senate. And if we do that, if we were to elect, say, three new Democratic senators, um, we could then use a majority in the Senate to overcome the filibuster for voting rights legislation or overcome the filibuster to codify Roe with uh, the Women's Health Protection Act, which we passed several months ago in the House. So what? we could get stuff done. Draw a through line from January 6th to outlawing abortion. Uh, explain the connection. You know, I would view them as just different aspects of the same uh, GOP assault on constitutional democracy and freedom. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell... Um, made it impossible for there even to be a hearing uh, for my constituent, Merrick Garland, who's now the attorney general, to um, 
it made it impossible for him even to get a hearing when he was nominated to the Supreme Court by Barack Obama. So they stole that seat, right? I mean, so that uh, th that seat uh, should not be um, in their hands. I mean, we, they've lost the popular vote um, in, what is it, like seven of the last nine elections, um, and yet they now have a six to three majority um, on the Supreme Court. And um, they have played extreme hardball in blockading uh, Democratic judicial nominees and then hustling through people uh, like Amy Coney Barrett um, in the very last days of the Trump administration when they had refused to even conduct a hearing for Garland because they said a year was too close to the election. So, I mean, people see through the, the fraud of these kinds of arguments, but what it adds up to is more and more right-wing power. And, you know, the, the GOP has organized itself and put in its bylaws um, a campaign to destroy Roe versus Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and the constitutional right to, to privacy, you know, for, for freedom in decision-making over procreative and reproductive choices. Um, so, you know, this is an attack not just on the right of women to to get an abortion, but the right of women to get birth control, the right of anyone to get birth control is up for grabs and the right of gay people to get married, that could be turned back. I mean, they could turn the clock back on all of it. I mean, Skinner versus Oklahoma was a case which finally struck down compulsory sterilization. Um, and if there's no constitutional right to privacy, a state that is powerful enough to tell you that you can't have an abortion, even if you're raped or the victim of incest, is a state powerful enough to compel you to have an abortion or compel you to be sterilized if you're deemed to be an unfit mother, as tens of thousands of women were sterilized uh, in the last century. So, you know, they're setting us up for totalitarian style governmental control over people's private lives, uh, just like they are uh, trying to dismantle basic public rights like the right to vote and to have your votes counted fairly. So I, I consider it an alarming situation. I think that, you know, we the Democratic Party for all of its flaws and its imperfections is really the only major party left that's committed to democracy. And uh, Lincoln's party has become Donald Trump's cult of authoritarian personality. And of course, as a cult, it is attracted to itself uh, every authoritarian political movement and idea in the country. And all of them have gone over there and they are now part of a worldwide autocratic assault on democracy from Putin in Russia to Orban in Hungary to Al-Sisi in Egypt to Terte in the Philippines, the homicidal crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, President Xi in China, you name it. Uh, they're all on the same team from Moscow to Mar-a-Lago, and that's what we're up against. You've said that the January 6th commission, uh, its findings are going to blow the roof off the house. Um, I, I assume you're wanting to keep that in reserve, what the specifics are, but in general terms, what will the commission deliver? And will there be consequences for anyone who's implicated? Well, I think we're talking about the greatest presidential 
crime against American democracy in the history of our country. Um, and so we're going to tell the story of how people at the highest levels of government, the highest levels of political power, made common cause with street fascists and actually helped to bring into being a massive violent street fascist movement. I mean, they originally tried to get together in August of 2017 in Charlottesville, where only 500 people gathered. And yet when they became the stormtrooper vanguard of this march of 40 or 50,000 people, they were several thousand people. They were five or six times the number who had gathered in Charlottesville. So people understand the way that Donald Trump exploited these extremist groups, but they exploited him too. They used him to uh, create their coalition and their alliance and to bring a lot more people into it and to uh, give them a certain kind of panache on the right in America, where, where now it's not considered uh, intolerable to be at a protest with people who are wearing t-shirts that say Camp Auschwitz uh, staff on them or to brandish Confederate battle flags and beat beat up uh, police officers with them. Um, I want to finish where we began. Uh, it's been almost a year and a half since Tommy's passing. How is he with you now? How is the mission that you have in Congress and in life connected to the ex horrible experience you've been through? Well, Tommy was someone who had great dreams for democracy. He wanted a lot more from democracy, not a lot less from it. And uh, so I feel very driven by the things that he saw and the things that he believed in. Um, and I feel the same way uh, that we need to be asking a lot more of ourselves, not a lot less from ourselves. Um, but I, I think that I feel very connected to his generation uh, of Americans because they've had a hell of a time. I mean, there's a huge emotional and mental health crisis among young, among young people now. And, um, you know, people used to talk about mental health stigma. Um, they don't really talk about it anymore because when you've got problems like depression and anxiety that are afflicting a majority of an age cohort in the country, it's hard to stigmatize it. Um, and the Surgeon General has declared there to be a national emergency in mental and emotional health among the young, all the way down through middle school and elementary school. So, you know, everybody is on an individual solo odyssey with respect to their psychological and emotional health, but it does exist in a social context and people exist in their environment. COVID-19 was a brutal an isolating time for people, a really demoralizing time for the young. Uh, and I know it was in, you know, in Tommy's case, and I know what the other young people in our family have gone through. So I feel we owe it to them to fight for them and also to get them to see that politics, although it's never going to be a complete answer for anybody, is a large part of the answer that people need to make a connection with others in their generation and with people who have fought for freedom and democracy before them. And that's gonna be part of the solution for us reestablishing a sense of well-being and security in a really dangerous moment for democracy. So uh, I, 
uh, I feel connected to Tommy's generation and I know how many young people loved him and miss him. And uh, I am a poor substitute for my son, but I'm gonna do everything I can to fight for that generation. Well, Congressman Jamie Raskin, I wanna thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much for having me, David, and hello to all my friends in Vermont.